0: Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. On Friday, a fee. On Sunday, a keen. Lay down. In- Welcome to Epiphany's Sunday Sermons, a podcast ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. To learn more about our church, visit our website at epiphanyligonier.org. Some of you have privately expressed to me your wonder why I always include song lyrics or Shakespeare references in my sermons. And I've given you, I know, a wild number of these illustrations in my time with you over the past three years. I've shared with you, for example, about my brush with an Olympic gold medal athlete in the wild, uh, an, an encounter that left me humbled and embarrassed. I've shared my testimony about how I went through a pregnancy scare with my high school girlfriend and found Jesus as a result. I have shared about my first grade teacher who punished me for reasons I still don't know to this day and how I'm still kind of affected by that. I've shared with you a number of times when I was adult for a husband and how, um, you know, Oprah Winfrey was born in a no-name place. I've shared with you a whole slew of diplomatic gifts. All of these have been sermon illustrations. And, you know, now that I talk about them, they don't seem like they have a whole lot of you know, helpful understanding. But given the context in those sermons, they helped me communicate the gospel to you in a meaningful way. And in my nine years of ministry, I found that the illustrations have been bridges that sort of help make our text come alive. They keep you plugged in, and they relate to you something that you have likely experienced. And so what I want to do today is I want to give you, share with you, uh, the greatest sermon illustration I have ever heard. <laughs> the greatest sermon illustration I've ever heard. And it's going to be out of left field. You may not get it, but it's a sermon illustration that's important to me, and it stuck with me now for over a decade. It's a sermon illustration that helped me understand the power of connection because somebody connected to me. And I would say that this this sermon illustration ended up making me into an Anglican pastor because it helped me understand how... Um, It helped me understand the gospel in a way that I just hadn't considered before. Beth, my long-suffering wife, has heard this sermon plenty of times now. God bless her. And today I'm going to bless you with it. But before I do, how's that for a hook, right? Before I share with you the greatest sermon illustration I've ever heard, I want to spend a little bit of time in context with our reading in uh, Acts this morning with St. Paul. Because uh, St. Paul and his preaching may not offer marriage anecdotes or sly references to 70s rock classes or Shakespeare. But in our reading today, what we're going to see is that St. Paul tries to make a connection with a crowd that he's very unfamiliar with. And like my Shakespeare illustrations or my C.S. Lewis quotes, Paul is going to try to build a bridge to his audience. So that they're going to understand in the fullest way possible the Christian gospel and he's going to, to shift the tone of preaching in the entire book of Acts as a result of this experience in Athens. So when we get to Acts 17 in our reading today, Paul has continued to be to, to his ministry of preaching across the Northern Mediterranean, in Turkey and Macedonia and Greece. And well, Paul has made some enemies along the way, particularly the Jewish community in Thessaloniki. Um Thessaloniki, which is uh, north of modern day Greece. The Jewish community in that city, they didn't just reject Paul's message. They were so anti-Paul and they were so anti-Jesus that they followed him even after he left town and went to the next town down the road. And they stirred up a riot to try to get Paul arrested and convicted. and well, it didn't really work. And so the local Christians, um they were they were recognizing that there was trouble afoot. And they kept some of Paul's companion, his missionary team, around because those guys weren't didn't have the same name recognition. They said, Paul, we're going to keep doing our thing here. Just go lay low in Athens for a while until everything blows over. Let the mobs go back home. Then we'll meet up and figure out where God wants us to go next. And so the team splits. Paul goes by himself down to Athens, right? And um, if you're a Bible person and you're new to the Bible and you're like, I don't know where Thessalonica is or, or Macedonia or whatever, on or all these cities. You hear Athens, and you're like, oh yeah, I know I know Athens, right? It's the same Athens. Paul goes to Athens to lay low for a while. This is the same like Plato and Aristotle and Socrates, Athens. This is old school democracy, Athens. This is you know Zeus and Hera, pantheon of the God, Athens, right? Uh, this is lamb gyros and hummus and yogurt and olives, Athens. <laughs> Paul lands there, right? This intellectual and spiritual hub of the ancient Western world, right? Rich white men, or I guess they were tan men, they're Mediterranean. Rich men in white beards and togas discussing philosophy all the time. And it's very likely Paul's first time in this city. We don't have any record that Paul did traveling like this before. And it's likely his first time in Athens. And when he gets to Athens, it kind of freaks him out a little bit. Because he sees statues everywhere. Athens was a huge and prosperous city. They had arts and culture and plays everywhere, right? Then that couldn't be said for every city in the ancient world. And part of that culture was a culture of sculpture and statuary. You're talking about massive stone carvings that could be found throughout the city. Sculptures that took time and money to make. And we see them in museums as these beautiful white carvings of marble, but these statues would actually have been painted bright colors, drawing the eyes of everyone who passed by. And some of these statues depicted historical figures of note. So you're talking about famous philosophers or generals or leaders. And other statues depicted Greek religious ideas, things like you know, um, mythic figures from Greek myths or even the gods themselves like Zeus or Athena. And so for an ex-Pharisee who grew up under a very strict no-idols rule, it must have been overwhelming to go into the city and see statues of gods and godlike people everywhere. The text tells us this. It says in our reading today that Paul's spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. So what does Paul do? Well, he starts preaching. He doesn't have his, his team nearby. It's just him. So he starts going to synagogues and preaching. And then he's going to street corners and he's just talking about Jesus. And he'll go anywhere people will listen. He says, I'm going to tell you about Jesus. And that's apparently a thing that happens in Athens because, you know, the uh, Stoics and the Epicureans are like, who's this guy and what he's talking about? And and they find him and they, they say, listen, we are interested in what you're saying, why don't we take you to, like, give a TED talk at the um, Areopagus, the mountaintop theater where we discuss philosophical matters like this. So Paul is given the spotlight, and that's what we read about today. Paul goes to the Areopagus, the the hill of the god Mars, god of war Mars, that's why they call it Mars Hill sometimes. Paul is given a spotlight there to speak about Jesus, and by proxy, he's going to speak against worshiping statues today. And that's where our sermon comes from, and it's what we read in Acts 17. Well, um, if you are in service, and if you're not in service today, and you're listening along online, this is the, the latter half of Acts chapter 17 that we're talking about. What's so remarkable about this sermon, at least why I think it's remarkable anyway, is that you can understand uh, the sermon through two opposing ideas. What does Paul include in this sermon and what does Paul exclude? Those are two different things. And if you look at the sermon, there's some things that Paul includes um, that you may be familiar with. For example, um, Paul includes uh, Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Right? Paul includes uh, these core items from the rest of the book of Acts, like that Jesus is coming back to judge the world and there's forgiveness of sins. Paul includes that, right? But what does Paul exclude? What are some things that he doesn't include? Well, he doesn't include any Old Testament prophecies to be fulfilled. He doesn't include any references to the prophets of the Psalms, which is something every other sermon in our series has included. Paul even goes so far as to do the opposite. He doesn't quote Old Testament scripture. He quotes their prophets and their poets and tries to connect with them that way. In fact, we know that one of the people quoted was Epimenides, who Paul also quotes in the book of Titus. And, and so there's this very odd nature to this sermon if you're going through and studying the sermons in the book of Acts here, because every other sermon has been like, let me tell you Jewish people about how Jesus is the fulfillment of every Old Testament ideal that has been waiting on the back burner for millennia, and he's here, and he's coming to judge the world, and he's risen from the dead, and uh, he's going to forgive your sins. That's the gist of every sermon in the book of Acts so far. But now we have something different. Yes, Paul does indeed talk about the forgiveness of sins. He talks about Jesus being risen from the dead. And he talks about how he's going to come back and judge and fix the world. But That's really the only common connection that this sermon has with any other sermon so far. The Old Testament, of course, is clearly important. Those bits are going to come later if any of these Athenians become Christian. Yes, they're going to learn about the God of the Old Testament. They're going to get there eventually. Prophets, the history of Israel, the life of Jesus itself, they're going to get to that. But today, Paul is thinking efficiently, we might say. How can I make a connection with my audience to tell them about repentance and resurrection and the coming redemption of the world? How can I do that? And the answer is to connect with them based on their culture. To talk about statues and their poets. And to say, hey, you guys are clearly religious people. You even have a statue to a god just in case you missed out on him. And now I want to tell you about that god. A god who is not made with stone or marble, but a god who who created all the stone and marble in the world. And he goes from there. Now, all that out the way. We have Paul, a picture of Paul in our reading today of someone who is reaching out and building bridges and trying to connect with his audience in such a way that the gospel will make more sense. And now I will share with you the greatest sermon illustration I have ever heard. And it comes to me courtesy of the 80s rock ballad master Meatloaf, who gifted the world his immortal song, I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. This is the greatest sermon illustration, and you're just going to have to follow me here because for some of you, this is going to be way out in left field, like I said, but for some of you, you're going to think, oh my gosh, by the time we're done here, it's going to blow your mind because this song gets a bad rap, right? I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. It's like, well, if you won't do that, then you won't do anything for love. This was a song that ran with uh, Dr. Pepper commercials a few years ago, right? I would do anything for love except share my Dr. Pepper. And even though Meatloaf won a Grammy for this song back in 1993, people continue to make fun of it. Oh, well, clearly he doesn't know anything about love because if he won't do anything for love, then then he would do that. But I'm here to tell you and be a contrarian and explain to you what was explained to me, which is that this song is a brilliant reflection on what love actually is. Because the first three quarters of the song is just Meatloaf singing about how hard relationships are, but also how much he loves his woman. That's the first, like, three quarters of the song, you know, and he sings things like some days it don't come easy and some days it don't come hard and some days it don't come at all and these are the days that never end, you know. Real wisdom and poetry, I know, and he, he goes on to sing and some nights you're breathing fire and some nights you're carved in ice And some nights you're like nothing I've ever seen before or will again. But of course, you know, there's the great chorus, right? He would do anything for love, except he won't do that. And again, the song goes on for some three quarters of it before it transitions. And it it transitions out of you know, Meatloaf just singing out loud to a duet of sorts, and a woman comes in and starts to sing and reply back, and and she starts to sing to them. This is how his love interest sings back. She sings, Will you raise me up? Will you help me down? Will you get me right out of this godforsaken town? Will you make it all a little less cold? Meatloaf sings, and I can do that. You following me so far? He can raise her up and help her down. And she sings again, right? Will you hold me sacred? Will you hold me tight? Can you colorize my life? I'm so sick of black and white. Can you make it all a little less old? And Meatloaf sings again, I can do that. And it goes on for a few more verses, but eventually his love interest sings this. She says, and after a while to forget everything, it was a brief interlude and a midsummer night's fling. And you'll see that it's time to move on. And she has another verse, and she sings, I know the territory, I've been around. It'll all turn to dust and it'll all fall down. And sooner or later, you'll be messing around. And Meatloaf sings to these two final verses. I won't do that. All right. So the song is called I Would Do Anything for Love, but I won't do that. And he actually says what he won't do at the end of the song. It's just no one's listening that far apparently. It's not ambiguous by any stretch. The thing that Meatloaf won't do in love is to leave when things get hard. He won't consider his relationship a fling. He won't be unfaithful to his partner. He's saying that if the love seems to dry up here, he says, I won't move on. That's not a possibility. I would do anything for love but I won't leave what I have to find it somewhere else. I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. Now, again, why is this such a big deal? Well, the minister who used the sermon illustration went on to talk about the love of God as described in the book of Galatians, how the one thing that God won't do for love is abandon his people when the love seems to dry out and move on. And to you, that again, that may be a total miss. But to me, the 20-year-old sophomore in college, when that Brian heard that sermon illustration, there was this fire kindled in his heart that he hadn't experienced before. Because that Brian, you see, was in a flailing romantic entanglement. He was confused about what love truly was. That Brian was wondering why the relationship was going so poorly. And um, finally, someone was starting to talk about love in a way that brought clarity to, to that Brian's deepest needs. It was so enlightening to me that I dedicated myself to that particular church to hear what that preacher had to say about God's love. And here I am like 11 years later, you know. A sermon illustration about meatloaf changed my life because somebody broke through the back door of my spirit and built a bridge between my heart and the gospel. Those of you who've been Christians for some time know what I'm talking about, right? The moment where the love of God... Um, is brought in with wisdom and healing into a long-standing struggle or wound. The scriptures do this all the time. This is what the word of God does, that if we read God's word and we do so with an open heart and an open mind, we're going to hear a word that comforts and heals and brings insight. But in our reading today, we discover a people who have zero access to God's word and zero learning uh, in God's gracious works. And so Paul is going to build a bridge one that the people in Athens in the first century would be able to cross. Um, he, he builds a bridge talking about statues and idols and unknown gods. But, you know, many folks reject that bridge, right? Because they get hung up on the resurrection of the dead piece. But there is um, one man who actually comes to know Jesus as a result of this sermon um, because the excuse me, the Areopagus or the Areopagus, depending on how fancy you are in your pronunci- pronunciation. Uh, the Areopagus was not just a place where ideas were discussed. It was a place where they also held law courts. And one of the judges in that law court, a man named Dionysius, a judge of the Areopagus, heard Paul preaching and not only became a Christian, but he became the first bishop of Athens. So, you know, the word did not go out in vain Um, because, you know, I, I think we can find some connection to what Paul is doing here in our own day and time. We may find it increasingly necessary to build bridges to the Athenians in our midst. Uh, Luke, the author of, of the book of Acts, is really funny when he says this. He says, all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. <laughs> and like, that's such a great dismissal of a grand and beautiful ancient culture. But isn't that also a perfect description of our culture in the year 2021? Increasingly, we are living in a world that will need us to build bridges to connect them to Jesus's death and resurrection and his coming to judge the world and his offer of repentance. In Paul's days, this word was good news. People hadn't heard it before. The Athenians were like, oh, this is new. Let's give it its day on the um, on the TED Talks. But our own time period, of course, we consider the gospel of Jesus Christ to be the old, old story. It's not necessarily novel. It's no longer new like it used to be. And in our own day, I think bridges can be as complex as a critical deconstruction of a pop song, or it may be an invitation to a pizza night. It may be a sermon that references the works of William Shakespeare, or it may be a quiet session of disciplined listening when a person shares their deepest hardships, It might mean a young person learning to share with kids on the playground. It might mean an older person learning to play video games on their smartphone. Increasingly, I think we're going to need to copy Paul and learn and submit ourselves to another person's culture and way of life to build a bridge so that the presentation of the gospel, to paraphrase one of Jesus's own parables, uh, falls on the soft soil of a broken heart instead of the hard soil of a calloused skin. Because after all... What is our God but a God who builds bridges? Who else is Jesus Christ but God himself building a bridge to humanity and crossing over it himself? Right. What, what is this? He is learning our culture, Jesus, He, in the form of right, very God of very God. He is learning our culture, learning our language, learning what it means to be a human firsthand. He is suffering as we suffer. He is loving as we love. He was even born of a woman for Pete's sake, right? And as he builds these bridges, healing the sick, befriending the unclean, rejecting money and power as a means to success, he meets each of us in the soft soil of our own heart, offering us good news that penetrates to our own core frailties and struggles. And what is the good news that Jesus Christ offers? Well, it turns out we worship a God who would do anything for love. He would condescend to earth in human form. He would be born to a Jewish peasant family, and he would forego the comforts of home and live as an itinerant preacher. He would stick to his ethical and spiritual guns even when the political and religious authorities had it out for him. He would be arrested for love. He would be tried for love. He would be flogged for love. He would even be crucified for love. He would truly do anything for love, even run right into hell and back. My friends, so I tell you today that this God who loves so deeply, who would do anything for love, um, has risen from the dead, and he's returning to fix the world, and he forgives you all your sins. And I speak to you this through the bridge of God's love and in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.